Good morning. Scripture reading today is from Acts 9, chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. Um, just to set the stage in the chapters just previous, we saw, uh, we see Saul standing and holding the garments while men and, um, stoned Stephen for his faith. Then we see Paul entering people's homes and dragging men and women out and putting them in prison for their faith. Then it shifts to Philip um, converting the um, Ethiopian. And meanwhile, it's where we start here, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground, and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus called Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he has seen a great seen a man named Ananias come and place hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer in my name. Then... Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks a lot, Rick. 
Uh, good morning. My name is Josiah. I'm the director of university ministries here at ECC, and I normally preach at Connection, our service for students on Sunday nights. But Bob Whitaker, our senior pastor, and I flip-flopped this week, and he's preaching in Connection, so I get to watch Sunday afternoon football for a change, and I am pumped about that. Uh, it's great to be here with you this morning. I want to start off telling you a quick story. So a few weeks ago, my wife Brittany and I were at a family wedding down in Columbia, South Carolina, and a lot of our family knows I'm a minister, and one of them came up to me and asked me if I had heard about this latest drama that had unfolded with uh, someone who's kind of a high-profile minister um, in the non-denominational church culture, and uh, long story short, this guy was kind of being a bully. Uh, I don't think it's a stretch to say he was a bit of a jerk to some of the people in his church, uh, some of the other leaders. And, you know, for some reason, those people just didn't see how lucky they were to have him, so he thought. Um, but this drama had kind of unfolded. And as I heard about it, I need to be honest, uh, I was feeling kind of a mix of disappointment, but also intrigue. Uh, I don't know if you're like me, but I can't say I'm completely immune to the soap opera drama that we sometimes hear about. And uh, in this non-denominational church world, you've heard these stories uh, they go like this. Have you heard about so-and-so's new book? Oh, man, I've had my questions about his theology. Slippery slope. <laughs> or uh, how about that high-profile pastor? I heard he's getting the boot from his church because he wants to spend four months a year writing in Hawaii. Um, man, I knew that guy was a self-promoter. Uh, we hear these stories from time to time, and we should probably be a little more upset by them than we are. Uh, but I bring this up not to make light of drama in the church, uh, but to point out that even in our world, um, as an independent church, we're part of a culture, and we hear these stories. And I bring this up to let you know that Paul, uh, whose story we just read, did not take place in a vacuum. Um, there was a real prevalent church culture, um, a religious community pardon me, in Jerusalem at the time of his conversion. And when the news of his conversion would have reached this Jewish culture um, of which he was a prominent member, this would have been shocking news. Um, and so just to kind of set the context of what Jerusalem was like at the time of Paul's conversion, this was a big city. Um, a few years after Paul would have passed away, the Roman historian Tacitus said there were around 600,000 people in the city of Jerusalem. And this was an interesting place because the religious culture and the political scene was largely intertwined. Um, and so Paul was a Pharisee. There were about 6,000 Pharisees in Jerusalem at the time. And this is also where the Jewish high priest, the leader of the faith, was located, as well as the Jewish Sanhedrin, which was their high court. And so Paul was someone who was really at the inner circle of the Jewish religious culture. This story takes place in real time and space. And when the news of Paul's conversion hit home, people would have been absolutely shocked. Um, he was someone who had the pedigree uh, to really go far. He was someone who was extremely zealous and committed as a practitioner of the Jewish faith. And in these events uh, that we read about, 
leading into Saul's conversion that Rick offered a brief synopsis of before he read our passage for this morning, we see that Saul's conversion would have not, would not have been something that anyone saw coming. Um, when we read the events that lead into this passage, no one could possibly anticipate where he would be a week later. We see that Saul was breathing out threats and murders on the church. And this is nothing new. The end of Acts 7 Saul was looking on with approval as the apostle Stephen was stoned. And after Stephen's death, we read that a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and that all the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And Saul began to destroy the church going from home to home. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. And so I think here's an analogy that may hit home for us Hoosiers. Paul's conversion was so drastic. This would be like Bobby Knight retiring at the peak of his career to start an upward youth basketball club, um, except much more surprising and significant and with a bigger aftershock. No one would have seen this coming. Uh, so where this story begins is in response to the persecution that believers were experiencing in Jerusalem at Paul's hand, a number of believers fled the city um, and so a small number of Christians was already located, were already located in Damascus. And some of the refugees from Jer- Jerusalem fled there to be with them. And so Saul went to the high priest in Jerusalem and obtained permission to go to Damascus and root out these believers. He was going to travel there, round them up, and bring them back to Jerusalem to be punished. Uh, these heretics, in his mind, who claimed that that renegade rabbi Jesus was the son of God who could forgive sins. And so, as Paul's coming into Damascus at the end of a long journey, Damascus was about 150 miles north of Jerusalem. Uh, this would have been a week's journey. Paul is coming into the city around noon. This bright light shone on him and just floors him, knocks him to the ground, and Saul is laying there on the ground, absolutely stunned. And a voice speaks to him by name, saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so Saul, being a very religious man, um, recognizes that he is having a conversation with God. He says, who are you, Lord? And note, this question presumes an answer. He's incredibly religious, and he knows that he's having an encounter with God. But he asks this question with, with both reverence and astonishment. Um, as someone who's committed his entire life to keeping the faith pure, why would God come to him and accuse him of persecuting him? Uh, Saul is on God's side. And so the answer Saul receives to his question must have been one of the most shocking and terrifying um, statements he ever heard in his life. What he heard is, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And so it's in this moment that Saul is faced with the truth that Jesus and God really are one. Uh, and that his persecution of God's people in Christ is persecution of God himself. Now, in fairness to Saul, uh, he was someone who was incredibly dedicated to preserving the ancient Jewish faith. He was someone who got the job done when no one else could. He was on God's side So he thought. He did everything he could to obey the law personally. He kept the corporate faith pure. 
Now Saul encounters God and finds out he's been playing against the team he thought he was playing for. So when God tells you you're persecuting him, what I would assume would follow is a display of God's wrath. But instead of that, Saul receives instructions to get up and go into Damascus to wait into the, to wait in the city until he's told what to do. And so the men who were accompanying Saul on his journey were shocked and speechless. They heard this sound, but they didn't know what was happening entirely. And so Saul stands up and opens his eyes, but realizes that he can't see a darn thing. Uh, the men grab him by the hands and lead him into the city. And I can't even imagine what a drastically different entrance than Saul must have been envisioning. He probably saw himself coming in like the law this town needed, coming to get the job done. Instead, he's coming in on his hands and knees, completely humbled. And so in the city, we read that Paul waits blind for three days for instructions from Christ. Uh, evidently, his encounter is, some, is one that affected him deeply. As Paul decided to fast until Jesus met him with the instructions he told him he'd deliver three days without food or drink. So imagine the state that he must have been in. Uh, his deep spiritual pride just obliterated by the conviction of his error. The tapes playing over and over in his head of the stoning of Stephen where he looked on with approval. The faces of the people he'd persecuted in his conscience. Um, Saul's independence taken away by blindness and his hunger and thirst driving his heart and mind into hyperspeed. I'll tell you, if I don't eat for three hours, you don't want to be around me. Uh, Saul must have been a wreck. And so God chooses to deliver these instructions to Saul through a series of visions and even a divine appointment with this believer named Ananias. So you want to talk about a 15 minutes of fame kind of guy. This is Ananias. This is the only time we read about him in scripture. He's a believer from the Damascus church who has a vision from the Lord that he's to go to the house Saul is staying in. And God tells Ananias, Saul will be praying when he gets there. That's how you'll identify him. He will have had a vision himself that a man named Ananias is coming to him to lay hands on him so that he can see again. But Ananias is no fool. He's heard the news that Saul would be coming, and he is not eager about this. Uh, he'd heard of what Saul had done in Jerusalem. He knew what Saul had come to do. But God makes it clear to Ananias he won't be the only one delivering a message to Saul. God had been working on Saul's heart since his encounter with Christ on the Damascus road, leading, to, leading him to accept that Jesus was the Christ. God told Saul that Ananias would bring the message to him, and God was speaking to, An speaking to Saul of the way in which he would bring the news of Christ to the Gentiles, to the nations, and even to the Jewish people. And so evidently, uh, this was enough to bring Ananias the courage he needed to deliver this message to which God had called him. And he even told him that he would give Saul the message uh, that he would suffer for the name of Christ. And so this emboldened Ananias. And he goes to Saul, which is really the equivalent of giving yourself up to the police based on Saul's past. But he goes to him all the same. And he goes to him saying, brother... 
He tells him, brother, imagine what a word that must have meant to Saul to know that this man who well knew what Saul had come to do saw him as his brother. He lays his hands on him and prays for him to receive the Holy Spirit and scales fall off Saul's eyes and Saul gets up and he's baptized. Then he eats and regains his strength. And as a result of this miraculous work in his life, Saul stays around and joins in community life with the very people he came to arrest. Um, what a dramatic display of God's grace in the life of this man. And so when we look at these events around Saul's conversion, this is nothing short of a miraculous act of God's sovereignty. God met Saul in Jesus Christ when the truth that Jesus was the son of God not only missed him completely, but absolutely consumed him with rage. Uh, this is a story in which God's ability to draw people to himself um, whoever he wants and whatever way he so chooses is powerfully displayed. And there are two things I want to point out about Saul's coming to faith here. And the first is this, that Saul would not have chosen to follow Christ had God not chosen to stop him dead in his tracks and meet him with truth and grace. But the second is this, Saul had a choice to make. How would he respond to God's interruption on his life? How would he respond to the truth about himself and the truth about Christ? Would he admit his error? And this story doesn't tell us exactly when Saul made that choice, but we know that he did make it. Uh, we know how the rest of the story goes. As we trace Saul's life from here, we see that he accepted his mission, and this was no cushy speaking to her. Um, as God told Saul he would, Saul did suffer. In writing to the church in Corinth, Paul lists his resume of suffering, so to speak, in 2 Corinthians 11. Listen to this. Frequently in prison, flogged severely, exposed to death again and again, he says, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. I don't know why he just doesn't say 39. <laughs> Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Saul did suffer. But just one chapter later in this very same letter, describing the way Christ shaped his attitude toward a specific area of suffering in his life, he says, Christ said to me in this, Christ said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What a radical perspective. All of this because one day, as a man was traveling on the road from Damascus, from Jerusalem to Damascus, God impacted the story of his life with the story of what he'd been doing from all eternity. Bringing a people to himself all because of his grace. And that work had now culminated in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And so in this tremendous display of shocking, unabounded grace, God knocked Saul the persecutor flat on his back and humbled him that he might know the depth and breadth of his love for all of mankind, including him, uh, this man who would call himself the worst of sinners. Saul would never be the same. This proud man who once pursued death to followers of Christ with all of his energy would later write, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. What a story of God's powerful work in the life of this man. And I know that a lot of people join us on Sunday mornings who aren't necessarily believers, and we are so thankful for that. Um, we love for our Sunday morning worship to be a place where you can come and explore what Christianity is all about. And I want to ask you a question. Um, how do you respond to what the Bible says God has done in Jesus Christ? If you were at our seminar last week with Dr. Daniel Taylor, I just had an absolute blast listening to what he had to say. Uh, this man has written some fascinating books on the topic of faith and doubt, uh, faith and skepticism, uncertainty, and risk in the life of faith. And he shared a quote from the former agnostic turned believer, uh, a famous writer named C.S. Lewis. And the quote is this, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. But if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. What do you say? How about you and your story? Maybe God hasn't literally knocked you flat on your back like Saul. But how's he been working in your life to meet you with the truth of Jesus Christ? It's no accident that you're here. How are you going to respond? How will you respond to this good news? How is God meeting you in your story with his story? Um, maybe you'll agree that God has been working in your life, but you still have questions about what trusting Jesus looks like. You need more answers before you are willing to commit to this story. And I want to say to you, for some people coming to faith is a real process. Um, other times it might seem like it happens in almost an instant. But I just want you to know this secret that really shouldn't be a secret at all. None of us here have all the answers figured out. It's always a walk of faith. Hebrews 11 defines faith this way. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. There will always be an element of the unknown. Uh, faith is out of our control, isn't it? Faith can be really scary, but that's okay. All God needs is our humble and weak faith. Our faith is strong in its object, him. Its power is not in us. God will meet us in the midst of our uncertainty and doubt. And this is something that carries over 
to the rest of our lives. God can handle our deepest struggles. Uh, Paul's words, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. No matter what you're going through, your story is never too big for God. And believe me, I don't say that ignorantly. This is not a church where we're at risk of developing a health and wealth theology. And I'll tell you why. Because we pray for your prayer requests every Tuesday morning at our staff meetings. And there are times where these meetings have plenty of tears shared. More often than not, most of us walk out of them feeling like we've been kicked in our shins a few times because we're walking with a limp. Um, as followers of Christ, we're all aware of the struggles. But what I want to say is that in the midst of those struggles, we have hope no matter what because of Christ's work on our behalf. We know that he is present with us. We know that he is able. We know that he is powerful to act. And it's all because of his grace and the hope of the day that he makes all things new. And when we trace the life of Saul after this episode... It seems that he's almost obsessed with God's grace. He had no delusions whatsoever about his standing before God being based on his performance. I love this truth, but I also have to be honest that this is truth that I have to preach to myself way too often. The gospel humbles and inspires us. There's no room for spiritual pride. We have nothing to boast in other than God's work on our behalf. But there's no room for feeling insignificant. God has made us the way we are. He's redeemed us by his grace for a purpose. And his spirit is able to work powerfully in you and through you as you follow him in faith in the mission that he gives you. And so we can forget this all too quickly, can't we? Um, we need to remind ourselves of this true story. We need to commune with God in prayer. We need to read his word, remember his promises, and read the stories of how he's worked in real time in history. And we need to commit ourselves to a community of people that will remind us of the truth when we can't remember it for ourselves. And so the last thing I want to say is this, that in the rest of the book of Acts, Saul just can't stop telling the story of how God met him with grace. Uh, he can't shut up about it. Uh, and we read, Luke's, we read Luke's account of this here in Acts 9, but Saul retells the story again in Acts 22 and 26, and again in Galatians 1. God met him with grace, and he had to tell others. And what a powerful thing that is. So we're talking about the mission of God here at ECC this semester, and that sure is a big topic. I cannot wrap my mind around it. And um, as we head into ECC's missions conference focus over these next few weeks, we're digging into the mission of God in some really deep ways and looking at what he's doing all over the world. As Dan shared earlier, God's heart for justice, his heart for the poor and oppressed, God's mission is big. But here's a really small, um, here's a really simple way that isn't small at all that you can engage the mission of God right here in Bloomington and your relationships. Share your story. Share the story of how God has met you with grace. It doesn't have to be the story of your life starting from day one. Um, but share with the people you care about a story of how God has met you with grace in the midst of your life, in the midst of your struggles, in the midst of your doubt, and how his grace has proved to be sufficient for you. That is a really powerful thing, and God's spirit can speak really mightily through our stories. And so that's what I want to encourage you with. Uh, that's something that's incredibly simple 
and incredibly profound. Uh, Share the story of God's grace for sinners, of whom I am the worst one, like Paul. Let's pray. God, uh, what a story it is of the way you met Paul, a man whose life was headed a million miles an hour in the opposite direction from being someone uh, to lead the church. But you took this chief persecutor and you made him uh, a champion of the gospel. And it's uh, not because of his performance. It's not because of his worthiness of that role. It's all because of your grace. And God, uh, I pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning, that we would see uh, your truth for what it is, that we would recognize uh, that Christ is the Son of God who's able to forgive sins. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here um, who doesn't know you, that you would speak to them right now, that you would speak to their heart and that they would um, have courage from you, Lord, to step out in faith and to trust you. And um, if that needs to happen through a conversation with someone, I pray that you would direct their steps um, and allow that conversation to unfold, God. But I pray for all of us that you would remind us of the riches of your grace, that Christ is sufficient for us, and that who we are is your people, your children, and that every day that we live is a day that we can rejoice in what you've done on our behalf and a day that we can have hope for what you will do. Um, And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ together. Amen. We please stand. Will you respond to what?